Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Alex Channon, Senior Lecturer in the School of Sport and Service Management at the University of Brighton. Alex introduces us to Stephen Ling and his theorization of edge work. Alex illustrates the value of the concept through discussing his research on sport, violence, and interactions in the martial arts gym, and how the concept helped inspire his love fighting, hate violence project with Dr. Christopher Matthews. Hi, Alex. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Lovely to be here. So we are here today to talk about Stephen Ling. I'm wondering if you could get us going by giving us a short introduction to who he is or what he's known for. Sure. So uh, Stephen Ling is um, is a, a sociologist and social psychologist who has worked, uh, well, I suppose he's principally known for his concept of edge work, which is what I think we're going to be focusing on uh, yeah. today. And that's certainly how I know of him through, through that concept of edge work. And um, initially, I was introduced to this when I was an undergraduate student taking a, um, a sport in society class. Uh, we were talking about sport and deviant behavior. And we were talking specifically about risk uh, and extreme risk taking. And Ling's work came up in that context, the, the way that he is, um, you know, he's written quite a few highly influential papers about this, this concept of edge work to explain uh, voluntary risk taking behavior. Um, I said to you sort of offline, you know, I'm not I'm not a huge uh, sort of authority on, on Stephen Ling's work beyond this. But it's I think, you know, looking at the impact that he's had in, in uh, sociology and psychology and sort of related subfields, it's this particular theoretical concept that, you know, a lot of scholars have found very useful for looking at voluntary engagement in risk, uh, risk taking behavior. Uh, my own background being in sport and sports studies, it's um, yeah, his work has been taken up quite a lot in the in the sport literature. Um, but also in other fields, uh, it's been used quite productively to look at, um, for instance, sadomasochism um, and to look at uh, stock trading and uh, role playing and uh, lots of different various different activities, um, largely sort of that you might put in the sort of leisure sphere. So it's not not so much, um, I think, in, in the uh, sociology of work, although it might be wrong there. Uh, but yes, uh, this, this notion of edge work is what he's principally known for. And it's something that I've um, found quite useful in my own studies on uh, on martial arts which i think we'll, we'll go on to talk about later yeah definitely so, yeah that, that's kind of where he, where he sits as a sociologist who studies risk um, with this signal concept of edge work i have a sense that he's not widely read within sociology outside of those specific subfields i never encountered him until i was doing my own research do you have a sense that he's widely read within that subfield of studying sport from a sociological perspective i think he's someone who's recognized yeah um, and i agree with you that he's not yeah if you were to compile a list of you know the 30 big theorists in in sociology over the last x number of decades most people probably wouldn't have Stephen Ling on their on their list there um but in sociology of sport I think I mean I've heard his, his name at conferences I've heard you know in, in conference papers people might use oh this might be um an example of edge work which which Ling defines as x y and z and you see often in papers there'll be a footnote that you know this this could be theorized in in Ling's terms as edge work and I've seen this quite often, actually, and I think I, I remarked about it in one of the papers that I wrote, that he tends to get name checked quite often as, oh, yeah, there's this other really cool concept that we could use that is, you know, edge work, see Ling 1990. Um, so I, I think he's certainly known. And as I said before, you know, he has been used quite widely in sociology of sport to look at these things. Um, uh, but I, yeah, I wouldn't have thought that he would be put forward as someone who is like a sort of central um, figure in, in the kind of pantheon of theorists, somebody rather who... Um, you know, has developed a concept that, that some folks have found really useful in uh, in specific investigations of 
you know, as, as far as I'm familiar, um, certain sporting activities for sure. So you were saying that as an undergraduate, you had a chance to read Stephen Lang. It wasn't that he was mentioned or referenced in a lecture, but that you actually read his primary work. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, we were assigned uh, on the module. It was it was about um, yeah deviant behavior in sport. The section on on risk taking. Uh, one of the parts of that was to look at edge work as a as a concept, um, as a concept which describes a, a very particular kind of risk taking. Um, it's not a synonym for risk taking. And that's really important. Whenever I teach this and in my writing about it, we've got to be clear that edge work is a specific kind of thing. It's not just taking risk. It does relate to something quite particular. Um, and in that respect, we read Ling's original work on, um, he, he'd sort of, in defining the concept, he, he described base jumping and skydiving as, uh, you know, as, as really illustrative examples of, um, you know, the kind of thing that he was talking about. So, yeah, we, we read that original work. And also, considering I was doing this in the early 2000s, there'd been a few papers that had used it since. Um, so, yeah, I got to have a, you know, first, first up close look at the original and, um, yeah, some some derivative stuff as well. Were you immediately drawn to it? Was it was it a text and a concept that you that clicked right away and you're like, oh, you know, this is something that's fascinating. Maybe I'll use it someday doing my own work. Or was it one of those assignments where you read it and then you just move on? At the time, it was the latter. Yeah. Um, as an undergraduate, you're, you're presented with hundreds of different ideas and you've got different modules you have to finish. And I had other modules that demanded attention. So, yeah, you always see these things through selective. Right. What do I need for my assessment? <laughs> I'll focus on that. I'll target my reading on it and we'll, and we'll be fine. Um, but it was enough that it stuck with me. And then in subsequent years, I've, I've come back to it. And in fact, I, I initially came back to it when I was um, reworking the module that I teach now on sport and deviancy remembering, oh, that was a really fun thing that we did in, in my, my year. So I'll revisit this. And I read a couple of the papers, put together my lecture. Um, I thought, oh, this is, yeah, this is pretty good, actually. And then it was during that process that I realized this was a, a concept that I could actually make a, a really good use of in a, in a totally separate piece of work that I was doing on uh, on violence in sport. And it actually spoke to me as like this, this notion of edge work is kind of a missing link, actually, in an argument that I've been trying to articulate around the difference between fighting and violence um, and interpersonal relationships in these, these kind of, um, you know, full contact combat sports. So it was through a process of I was introduced to it years back enough to make an impression. And then I recalled it later as something that would probably make, you know, be of interest to my students, which then, yeah, as it, as it happens, became um, very useful to me. Let's take a moment to actually get into the concept. So we've been kind of dancing around it for a bit. We've talked about, uh, you know, how it can be useful in understanding violence. You've talked about how it's not just a synonym for risk taking. So what does Ling mean by this idea of edge work? Okay, so he initially derived the term from uh, the work of Hunter S. Thompson, who some of your readers, uh, listeners might be familiar with. Um, it's the guy who wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, uh, not, not someone that I've yet recorded an episode. No, not a famous sociologist, no, a journalist who uh, had his own unique style. Um, somebody who I, I think a lot of folks might have heard of outside of uh, academia. Yeah. Um, and he was he was using it to describe his own um, experimental drug use. So that's Ling was sort of got the hold of the idea from that work and developed it in, you know, off the back of that into his own articulation. And the first thing to think about edge work is it involves voluntary risk taking. And more specifically, it involves behaviours which involve a kind of negotiation of a boundary. Um, typically, one that's got very high stakes associated with it, like the boundary between life and death. So when you dive out of an aeroplane with a flimsy little parachute as your only safety, you know, you're, you're coming pretty close to that line between life and death. When you experiment with mind altering drugs, you come close to the boundary between 
um, sanity and insanity, maybe, or you know, sort of transcendental and consciousness and and, uh, and not. So you're you're coming close to a sort of existential line, where if you cross that line, you're in a lot of trouble. Well, you're dead right? if you don't if the parachute doesn't work, it's game over. So edge work is about voluntarily engaging in these high stakes, um, yeah, negotiating these high stakes boundaries, and more specifically than that. Edge workers in, in Ling's theory, theorizing seek out these experiences, not because they want a thrill or a buzz. It's not that they're adrenaline junkies. Um, it's that they want to test themselves in situations where most people would find uh, most people would find completely um, uncontrollable. So can I stay in control? Can I remain composed when I come right up to the edge between life and death? Can I keep my cool? Can I master this situation and sort of learn something about my character by exposing myself to extreme uncertainty and extreme danger. So edge work is not the same thing as just putting yourself at risk. It's not gambling. It's not um, being an adrenaline junkie. It's particularly seeking out the opportunity to experience mastery in the face of chaos. I think that's probably the easiest way to sum it up. Yeah. So I kind of hate when people <laughs> when people do this, but I'm going to do it. Um, thinking about this concept, you've got these two words how you're explaining edge makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious if we could go a little bit further with the work part of it. So is that really about negotiation and kind of uh, the act of trying to have a sense of control in the face of chaos? Is is that right? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I, I would see it maybe, maybe there's a further connotation in that it's not edge play in the sense that you are, mm. you know, this isn't a, sort of end in itself you know you're, you're doing this to learn something about yourself you're doing this to to achieve some kind of realization there's, there's like a self-actualization goal involved here perhaps um maybe also to, to be part of a, a wider community of edge workers to to become part of an exclusive club of people who face down death and and, and live through it so the experience is um you know it provides you the opportunity to do that kind of work on revealing your true character. That's I, I, that's how I kind of interpret it. So, yeah. Does he theorize who engages in this type of activity or is it more that he's theorizing, here's people who do engage in this activity, let's understand what they're up to. So I'm wondering if he tries to think about where that drive actually comes from. Is it something fundamental to humans uh, uh, and their experience of the world? Is it more this, you know, people who are removed from this type of risk need to seek out and it might engage in edge work? Or is it really, hey, this happens, let's make sense of it? Yes, I think there is, in several of his works, he does try to make the connection, particularly he, he refers to um, the, the sort of routinized, socially bounded limits of late modern society. So we're largely talking about the kinds of people who will have safe lives, who will have routine, fairly predictable lives. He uses the term in a few of his, his papers, um, an over-socialized life. So somebody who is, um, I mean, I, I when I teach this, I talk about Fight Club, because everyone, everybody's seen the movie. Some people have read the book, everyone's seen the movie. Um, usually men, most of the research on edge work is, is, is about things that are done by men, which we could probably get into separately, um, but it, it usually is um, men who perhaps hold themselves to ideals of masculinity they've seen in movies. You know, for me, it was James Bond. I had to be James Bond when I was growing up, but my destiny is not to be James Bond at all. My destiny is to go to university, get a degree, get a job, get a mortgage, have kids and die, <laughs> you know, yeah. not to 
or or we could we could add yet maybe there's time still for you to realize that dream <laughs> of heading towards being James Bond. I don't want to I don't want to close the door quite maybe, yet. <laughs> yeah, my career in international espionage. Yeah, uh, but yeah, we we're taught that that's um, you know maybe it's a way to be a man or maybe it's simply um, you know an exciting destiny that you can look forward to. That there's these adventures to be had. Um, and then we realize actually there aren't any adventures to be had, that there's no frontier anymore and everything is sort of solved and, and resolved. And all we have to do is get on the biz- with the business of um, being happy. And in that kind of context, the allure of these activities starts to make sense because I don't get any opportunity to live out those those ideals. I don't get any opportunity to see, you know, could I actually survive if I was, um, you know, tied to a chair and thrown underwater while I had to save someone from a bomb or something, you know, could I, could I do that? Right. In my fantasies, I can, but I don't know for real. So edge working involves me coming close to those kind of edges to see if I can actually live up to the standards that I've sort of been encouraged to see for myself. So as to your question, um, yeah, Ling does associate this primarily with um, people who are, who are in those kind of social conditions. Now, I think it's a fair critique to say, you know, late modern Western societies, usually men, um, they might be the object of that research because that's right in front of us as scholars who who live in that environment. That's probably where we're going to find this. Um, but does that mean it's only tied to that specific group of people? Well, probably not. Right. We're talking about a social process here that creates um, a kind of perceived need in individuals to experience these things. That social process could exist in any number of settings. Um, in Ling's work, he tends to make that that connection, um, you know, quite specifically rather than being more uh, sort of abstract about it. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I approach that. How about we get into your work? So you've mentioned that one of the reasons or the main reason that you returned to this concept of edge work was the own, your own research that you were conducting on mixed martial arts or on sports and violence. So could you tell us a bit about what you were actually doing? Sure. So. Some of your listeners might, if they're interested in martial arts as a field of study, they might have come across some of this before. Um, Something I've been involved in for a few years now has been writing about sport and violence uh, with my colleague Chris Matthews. Um, Specifically, we we developed a project called, which we call Love Fighting Hate Violence, which is designed to, uh, to, to facilitate conversations about what violence really is and how we can use sport perhaps to challenge violence. Um, particularly with respect to how we engage in combat sports and martial arts. And, you know, if you, if you ever ask any martial artist, you know, is what you do violence, you'll, you'll either get a flat no or you'll get a response that sort of problematizes the idea that punching people is always violent or at least always violent in the same ways. And what we argued was there's, some, some, there's, a, there's a tacit knowledge that exists in martial arts circles that fighting and violence are not necessarily the same thing and that punching somebody is not always an act of violence. And what separates those two things, you know, the, the violent from the non-violent, um, typically is about consent. It's typically articulated around that, that principle that if I want you to hit me, um, and then you hit me, you haven't violated me, and therefore I don't experience it as violence. And I won't get into this in a, in a huge amount of de- detail because we'll be here all day, but that's basically what we were saying. Yeah. <laughs> that there's a, an appreciation among martial artists that there is a, an important difference. Some people don't like to use the word violence at all, um, and others will qualify and say it's controlled violence or it's consensual violence or it's legitimate violence or something. They will in some way differentiate this, this sort of morally good action in martial arts from a morally bad action, which would be you know, punching somebody that you don't like in, in anger. Uh, for example. 
So we've got this project, Love Fighting Hate Violence, where we're trying to use martial arts activities to, to get young people to reflect on that and to think about consent in a wider sense. Um, folks can can Google Love Fighting Hate Violence if they want to check out our stuff. You'll find it on online. Yeah, and I'll um, be sure when I put out this podcast, I'll make sure in the episode notes to include a link so people can easily find your project. And and while we're on the subject, and I'm going to try not to take you down this path because I also uh, would, be, <laughs> would be excited to talk about this all day. But for people who haven't, been inside an MMA gym or for people who haven't trained in martial arts, they might not be aware how fundamental concept, a fundamental of a concept consent actually is during training, right? This is something that you should pick up on day one, uh, an understanding of how intense you, you should be going when you're drilling versus uh, when you're sparring versus a hard sparring session. Um, and those ideas are really things that are articulated better in MMA gyms than many places in our life. Um, and I suppose I should have this in a form of a question. So is, is that a fair and accurate assessment? <laughs> I completely agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Although yeah. I would I would say I, I think you're right about day one where it tends to be articulated verbally. Mm-hmm. Um, but after day one, it tends to not be, in my experience. It tends to be more tacit yeah. and it's lived through and lived out. And most of the time, that's fine. Most of the time, people... Um, don't want to have direct conversations but, uh, and using the word consent all the time. It sounds too formal and too stuffy, yeah. but they live it out and they, they experience yeah. consent in quite profound ways. And you get to a point where you pick up little embodied signals from your training partners. You know when they don't want to go hard. You know when something's wrong mm-hmm. and you know you can adjust your approach. So there is a really good understanding of consent, I think, in in martial arts circles, or at least there, there is in, in many places yeah. um, and there can be. Yeah, and I, I think I was pretty sloppy with that generalization because you have to pay attention to variation between gyms and what the gym culture is. There's there's definitely places where the norm is to go incredibly hard and you have to go beyond the level of, of, of what you actually are seeking Exactly, out. yeah. So we developed Love Fighting Hate Violence partly as a way to use martial arts to talk about consent, but also to encourage martial artists to reflect on this. And in those gyms where, yeah, the norm is, you know, you go hard or you go home, well, you know, is everyone really okay with this? What are you doing? What kind of pressures are you placing people under by, you know, sort of socially stigmatizing them if, they, if they're not happy with hard sparring all the time? And, you know, these kind of conversations are really important now with our, our growing awareness of head injury and, and, and so on. So, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the project is, is largely for martial artists and for using martial arts to do, to do something, you know, positive educational um, outcome. Anyway, that's that's kind of the context. <laughs> so this is this is something that I've been working on for a few years. We've been, as well as the project itself, the educational project, we've developed a coaching toolkit and, and done all this sort of stuff. And there's also the academic side of it, where um, Chris and I have, have, have been articulating, you know, the theoretical underpinning of this, um, you know, derived from our own ethnographic studies and interview studies with with combat sports uh, athletes and coaches. Um, you know, trying to spell out the, the difference um, by looking primarily at the interactions that take place in martial arts, using interactionist sociology, so different sort of theoretical assumptions um, about um, understanding the subjective meanings that people bring to their objective actions in the sense that a, a punch is not always a violent act, depending on the meaning that it's given by the people involved. So we got to this point in our theorizing where we're saying that we, we've got this interactional analysis looking at the, um, you know, the dynamics of interactions in martial arts training, the subjective meaning that people have uh, in these these environments, um, how they themselves construct identities around this supposed non-violence, consensual, you know, ethical behavior and so on. Um, but there seemed to be something missing that if the fighting that's happening in, let's for argument's sake, just say MMA, 
if the fighting that's happening isn't violence, uh, what is it? Because it's still damaging, right? It's still forceful. It's still painful. It's still, you know, problematic sometimes. Uh, and, you know, we need a way to explain what this actually is. And just calling it fighting, it seems a bit of a cop out, really. So what's going on if it's not violence? If the characteristics of that interaction aren't violent, then what are those characteristics? And Edgework came along as a, as a concept which really, I think, speaks very, very well to the extant literature, the, the, the empirical case studies, the ethnographies, one of which has been produced by yourself, uh, which I think uh, fits quite well, actually, with, um, with the stuff that I've written about, um, which show quite a lot of the features of Edgework being lived out in the gym and in the narratives constructed by fighters. They're saying things like, um, you know, I do this because I want a real true test of, of my abilities, or I didn't really know myself until I came here. Um, they say things like, you know, the emotional rush uh, is, is like nothing else you'll ever experience. And my ability to stay in control is like the thing that I need to train the most. So there's a lot of things that are coming through that actually fit quite nicely with this. Um, and where Edgework came into our, our theorizing around violence was, well, if Edgework requires you coming up to an edge, getting close to this edge between life and death or, or whatever to gain these powerful emotional experiences and learn about yourself. In uh, skydiving, the edge is provided by gravity and the ground. Uh, in mountaineering, it's the mountain. You know, in deep sea diving, it's the, the water. Um, what provides the edge in MMA? Well, it's the other man's fists, right? It's your opponent's resisting, um, you know, strategies, combat tactics, etc. It's what your opponent is doing that enables you to come close to this edge that you want to work. The edge between consciousness and unconsciousness, uh, between remaining in control, keeping your cool and being scared to death. Rabbit in the headlights. So if you want to gain this authentic knowledge about your fighting abilities, if you want to learn about yourself as a person or as a man, you know, if, it's, if we're talking about this in terms of masculinity, well, you need a resisting opponent who's genuinely trying to take your head off in order to get that experience. So rather than theorizing this interaction as one of, you know, a, a sort of forceful, damaging violation where one person tries to destroy the other, actually what we're seeing is a collaboration between people who are working together towards a shared goal of experiencing edge work. So that's kind of how it, it fit in. And it, it, like I say, it was the missing link, really. It's like, well, what is this if it's not violence? Well, it's collaborative edge work. All right, this, this is really fascinating, and it might be it might be hard to articulate. Maybe it's fascinating. I I, th I think it's fascinating. Um, so in the examples that you're giving, it's very much about the individual, right? It's the individual who takes that mind altering substance and then goes on that journey, or it's the individual who looks out of the plane and then jumps into the abyss and has to pull the cord on the on the parachute as they as, and and float to the ground or wherever it works. Uh, but here you've got, like you're saying, it's it's two people, and so it's a it's a cla it's a group interacting. Um, but is it is it necessarily still about the individual? So I hope this is making sense. But is is edge work always focused on the person engaging in that activity on the journey, um, even though it's with another person? Is that right? Yeah, and that's that's what makes it so feel so authentic. I, I get to know my true self because I put myself in the situation and I carried myself through it. And of course, you know, combat sports training is never a purely individual undertaking. You have your coach, you have your teammates, and you know, any any fighter who's competed will will be able to talk to this that you can't do it on your own. 
But when it comes to the actual moment of, of testing your abilities, you know, that requires a different kind of support, a different kind of collaboration that you need someone to cooperate with you whilst trying to hurt you, you know, whilst trying to actually beat you. So it has the appearance of um, antagonism, it has the appearance of hostility, the appearance of being at cross purposes. And perhaps in many cases it is. But at the same time, it's a collaboration between those two people providing a service to each other in order to experience that that yeah that sense of individual empowerment that sense of knowledge about my my true self and so on so yes edge work i think is an individual thing uh, but in certainly in this case it is not possible to experience without the support of others another aspect of this that that really fascinates me and and drives some of the questions i ask in my own research as well is this question of motivation so edge work is this really powerful tool to to get at that experience that uh the help us understand the appeal of being in a site and doing something like mixed martial arts. But what happens over time? So, you know, three years down the road where you've been training and you've gone through those same drills and you've had these experiences multiple times, do you have to seek out something different? Do you have to amplify it? Are you still feeling like you actually are on the edge? Uh, um, and yeah, so, so how does, how is time part of this story? That's a really good question. It's not something that I've empirically tested, so I, I couldn't say with you know yeah. authority that yes or, or no. Um, I suspect that it does. I think from from having read the um, the empirical literature that we do have, doesn't use edge work as a theory, um, but I think it speaks reasonably well to the fact that even veteran fighters are still experiencing combat in those ways. You know, if you hear accounts from you know folks who've been at the highest level for several years, they still get that that disorienting effect of walking into the cage. It's it laser sharp focus, that kind of, um, you know, we, we could perhaps theorize this as a kind of flow state, maybe, you know, the, the sports psychology concept of flow, um, where you, you everything in your whole world narrows down into this one perfect sort of synchro, synchronicity with this task you have to achieve. So we still see these narratives coming through from people who've been around for a long time. It, it doesn't necessarily become routinized, like stepping into the cage to have a competitive fight. Although for some people, maybe it does. Um, again, I, I can't say that we've empirically tested this, yeah. so we, we're sort of stabbing in the dark a little bit. My suspicion is that for most people, it would remain, um, yeah, this, this very powerful emotional experience, maybe not quite as profound as the first few times they do it, and perhaps also changed when we introduced the, the fact that professional fighters are uh, motivated by um, developing their careers, you know, whether it's a payday or a sponsorship deal or publicity or maybe to throw a fight if they're, if they're one of those you know, involved in that kind of thing. So maybe with those different motivations, that might shift it slightly. Um, but, yeah, my suspicion is that even for more more um, experienced fighters, this would still count as a uh, as, as a quite a profound motivation based on you know the limited research that we've got. So and I think another part of what I'm trying to get at here is just thinking about how does edge work have to be something outside of the everyday, right? So for someone who's been training for three years and say they're training, I don't know, three or four times a week, that becomes part of their routine. So it's not like they're they're no longer escaping from the ordinary day-to-day -day in a way similar to that first time or that first month that you're in a gym or the first time you try the psychedelic drug or the first time that you go skydiving. Mm -hmm. So does it have to be new and unusual? 
Yeah, so this, this sort of brings us back to another one of the definitive features of edge work, um, which I didn't talk about earlier, which is that edge workers spend a great deal of time preparing for, for their journeys to the edge. Edge work is not something you just rock up and, and do one day um, because you don't have the skills to do it. And so what you're testing when you get close to the edge is not your ability to you know, maintain um, composure and stay in control and you know, experience mastery. You're testing your skill. Um, you know, can, can I pull the parachute cord at the right time? You know, can I read the mountain well enough to know how to climb it? You know, can I actually throw punches and, and defend myself? Um, edge work is, is about, uh, involves eliminating all of those other questions. All the things that you can control, you work as hard as you can to make sure that you remain in control of those things. So that when you go to the point of, of the edge, the only thing that you're testing is your sort of character you know have you got the stuff that it takes to remain composed in the threat of imminent danger so yeah edge workers will spend you know and mma fighters do spend months training for specific fights they train for particular opponents you know am i going to be able to counter that that um, that vicious leg kick that he's got am i going to you know is my jiu-jitsu going to hold up so they spend time training specifically for the exact challenge that they're going to use as a vehicle to to provide edge work so that when they engage in that that process of actually testing themselves it is themselves they're testing i think there's nothing more dissatisfying um, and i don't say this as an mma fighter i say it as someone who has a little bit of experience in combat sports not mma um, but there's nothing more dissatisfying than stepping onto the mat and getting submitted immediately because you didn't know that submission oh god you know months of training all my conditioning my diet my my weight cut everything is just gone because i didn't know that move and Wow, what a waste of time that was! What I really want was was a you know a five minute thriller um, where I get to demonstrate my skills and, and really be tested. I don't want to be beaten immediately. It's an anticlimax. So yeah, edge work involves a huge investment of time to eliminate all of the uncertainties, so that when I get to that 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 culminant moment, the one thing I'm testing is my ability to remain in control in the face of uh, of chaos. That is very useful, and it helps it helps me differentiate how what you're talking about or what link theorizes with edge work is so different than just simple risk taking or adrenaline seeking or or even an yeah. act of violence right there's something there's something very fundamental about the process leading up to it and what you're seeking out of it um another another thing i was wondering about in regards to violence is perhaps edge work and the and what you're discussing highlights the difference between what the participant experiences versus someone from the outside, right? So if someone turns on the TV and there is a UFC fight on and it's bloody and there is uh, one person elbowing or choking the other person, I can understand why there would be that description of violence, but that seems fundamentally different than how you are trying to understand it and what Ling allows us to get at. Is, is, is that right? Yeah, I, I don't think that casual outside observers would get anywhere near this level of, of theorizing the, the motivations and the, the meaning that fighters bring to the activity. If, you know, all you see, you just turn on your TV and it's the first time you see it and there's blood and guts everywhere and, and people are sort of getting pounded on the floor and all this sort of thing that, yeah, I, I would, I mean, I would forgive somebody who's an outside observer from making that because that's certainly what it looks like. Um, but if that's where our, our social science ends, then it's not very good social science, is it? You know, we, we need to get up close to these things and we need to think about what meanings do people bring to their actions? You know, the people who are actually doing them. What does it mean to you? How have you um, how have you come to this point where, you know, you willfully engage in an activity which could see you be beaten unconscious? How on earth can you spend 
15 minutes fighting, you know, what looks like fighting for your life. And then the minute the bell rings, you smile and hug the other guy. What's going on there? Right. You know, there's high fives and, and kissing in the in the cage. How how do we make sense of this if we don't ask those people what it's like? And if we don't maybe even as, as you've done, you know, spend time actually doing it and, and living among um, the, the men and women that, that engage in this sport. And that's one of the points I try to really bring out in the paper um, that I wrote about this is, you know, these these armchair critics. Uh, of MMA you know mm. you've got to do better you know you've got to listen to what people are actually saying and, and listen to um, you know spend a little bit of time engaging with this world because it's it's curious and it's it's unique and the kinds of things that are going on here uh, require careful and, and contextual analysis and I think edge work is a good concept to use for this not the only one of course um, but yeah the the sort of knee-jerk reaction that this is just violence or this is only violence um, yeah that that's not particularly sophisticated and I think that's uh yeah, something that as as theorists who are interested in explaining these worlds, we um, yeah we need to take seriously. Yeah, and it shows how theory and methods they can never be completely separate. The way you theorize or try to make sense of something is going to dictate how you actually go and study it. What type of data matters? So edge work pushes us to really try to understand something at the experiential level. One of the, one of the things that we made note to return to, and I, we haven't had a chance yet, is this question of gender. So as you've pointed out. Many of the examples that are provided, uh, much of the research that's been done using this concept of edge work has focused on things that men do. So is this necessarily a gendered concept? And is that something that Ling himself reflected on in, in providing us with this theory? So, yeah, one of the critiques that comes through in a lot of the work that, um, well, not a lot of the work, but some of the work that's used um, Ling's concept has addressed this is almost like the elephant in the room, really, mm -hmm. that, you know, this is a mainstream sociology or sports sociology in the 1990s and we're not really that well attuned at this this point in time to questioning sort of male stream bias perhaps you know those, yeah. those critiques were coming out the 80s and 90s but hadn't really sort of settled into the um you know the, the sort of general awareness that that every researcher would have which i think uh, is fair to say now sociologists are a lot more aware of this and are, are yeah. self-critical and reflective um, so I think it, it's almost it's more by accident in the, in the early goings and then simply by, um, you know, I'm interested in looking at an extreme sports subculture and I'm going to use edge work to make sense of it because I think that works. And those extreme sports subcultures generally are populated by men. So it happens that I'm developing the concept, doing research on men um, in an area which is also associated with masculinity. So I don't think there's any kind of you know, necessary bias in the concept that it is only about men and masculinity, but a combination of those factors, one sort of researchers may be being a little bit gender blind. And I'm sure that, you know, sharp eared listeners will have picked up that I've only used the masculine pronoun a couple of times today yeah. in this talk. It, it tends to be the, the case that that's in the older research, there's a gender blindness, uh, but also the, you know, the activities that we're looking at just tend to be um, more heavily populated by uh, by men because they take place in a culture which defines them as masculine so there is a bias i think in the general use of the concept but it certainly can be used to, to look at um you know women's lives and things that are populated more by women um, and i mentioned some of the research uh, particularly the um the work on sadomasochism by stacy newmar yeah. uh, which she really takes us to task she talks a lot about gender and, and edge work on a conceptual level but also you know, is reporting on her own ethnographic research as a woman um, in sadomasochism. Um, so yeah, and, and the concept works really well. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of a, an accidental gender bias that could be corrected with um, some purposeful work, yeah. You've covered this a bit already, but I'm wondering if you could reflect on, as you've worked through this project, as you've drawn on this concept of edge work, 
have there been other theorists that you found to be very useful or, or particularly compatible with Ling's ideas? Yes, uh, I think uh, firstly, the the particular paper that I've written and the stuff we've been talking about here, um, the, the wider body of work with myself and Chris Matthews, we've, we've drawn on a, a number of interactionist theorists um, to, yeah, to, to think about um, fighting as a human interaction. Um, Randall Collins' work on violence as well, I think it potentially marries up nicely with this if you have a mind to synthesize them, which is what we, we did in, in uh, some of our stuff. Um, so there is that, and we've already kind of touched on that. Uh, but probably also Elias, Elias and Dunning, um, the civilizing process, quest for excitement. Again, for, for sports studies listeners, uh, probably be familiar with Norbert Elias' work, um, the sort of broad notion of uh, Western societies uh, developing over time to sort of become more controlled, emotionally controlled and have a lower um, tolerance for violence and um, uh, generally live more sort of routinized and uh, socially ordered lives. And within that context, there is this sort of impulse to seek out exciting experiences, which Elias and Dunning call the quest for excitement. Um, and other, other theorists who've used their work have uh, developed in numerous different ways. Um, so there is yeah quite a, a good synergy there. And perhaps unsurprisingly in the sports studies literature, you, you will find those two married up uh, quite often. And in fact, Ling uh, writes in dialogue with Elias um, in one of his later uh, pieces uh, or a couple of his later pieces actually as well as Goffman and, and other other theorists so yeah it's a concept that I, I think whenever you get one of these sort of you know it's a, it's a signal concept that's not embedded in a grand theory so it, it finds a home quite nicely in um, you know in conjunction with with loads of um, you know different perspectives I think all right final question and this is one that I always look forward to why is Ling worth reading so in other words, if you were standing in front of a room full of undergraduates or graduate students or fellow faculty members or the discipline as a whole or the general public, why would you say that this is a concept, this is an idea, this is a theory that is worth spending your time engaging with? I think maybe um, aside from this entire podcast, yeah. <laughs> I would probably revisit the, the point that you made about theory and methods working together. And, uh, and this is something that I would also say for interactionist sociology that I've, I've come a little bit late to in my, my career. I didn't use it initially, and, and I've, I've come to this through subsequent reflection and so on, um, is that if we employ the concept of edge work, you know, this really, like I said before, you know, you, you're not going to figure this out by looking from afar. You know, you really need to listen to what people are saying about their participation in what from outside will, will seem like crazy things like jumping out of an airplane. Why on earth would you do that? Right. You know, never mind the, the, the cost of all this stuff, but the danger to yourself, why, why on earth would you do that? You need to, to listen to what people are actually saying about what they do. And, you know, as sociologists, as social psychologists, as scholars more broadly interested in understanding human behavior, um, I think that, you know, methodological commitment to, um, you know, interrogating the lived experience of, of the people that we study um, in, a, in as valid and sort of up close and honest ways that we can is um, is vital. And I think edge work is a concept which really needs that. You know, you can't sit from afar and just guess at this. You would need to talk to people about how and why they engage in these high risk activities. Um, so for me, one of the principal values of this concept, besides its specificity and its, you know, its, its unique fit with these things, um, is that it calls us to really take that seriously and to spend time, um, yeah, living through or sort of, you know, engaging with the lived experience of uh, people that do crazy things. I think that's a, a perfect way to end the podcast. So 
thank you for joining. This is an enjoyable conversation. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you very much, Kyle. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me on. It's uh, yeah, it's an honour to be uh, to be talking to you. And um, hope your listeners have um, yeah heard something that uh, they're interested in. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music. Undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project. And most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. Thank you.